I'm Evan Rowland. And I'm Hannah Schaefer. Welcome to Design Doc. Metaplot. This gross-sounding word describes what's created when multiple, independent works coexist in the same fictional universe. They're not sequels or prequels, more like a loosely connected history. If something changes in one work, it has the potential to impact every other piece in that universe. The term comes from tabletop RPGs, where creating an overarching story and timeline for the world helped companies hook players, helped them sell supplements and tie-in novels, and extended the life of a game line. Metaplot can help smaller stories carry greater weight. But a complicated metaplot also creates new barriers to entry and risks plot holes and timelines that make absolutely no sense. If metaplot opens up the door to all these potential problems, why bother with it in Questlandia? Our hope is that by creating a larger story for Questlandia's games, we'll be more likely to connect with our audience at first blush. That cohesive narrative also opens up the possibility of expanding the game's world through different mediums, like fiction or comics. We've always loved the worlds that we created in Questlandia, but up to this point, they've existed in a vacuum. By connecting the worlds together with an overarching story, we can give them a larger purpose. But we need to be careful. Along with all the other potential downsides, Questlandia's worlds have the potential to be wildly different. It's going to be hard to create characters that can persist from world to world without imposing on or constraining the various settings. If we create characters that can somehow travel between these stories, we're also edging closer to something we've tried actively to avoid, the Chosen One's narrative. We don't want Questlandia to just be about heroes, and dimension-hopping superpeople isn't a great start for sticking to that goal. So, can we make a metaplot work? So, the first question on our list is, why are we doing this? <laughs> <laughs> why are we doing this? So I feel like when we first started to talk about expanding Questlandia from a one-shot to a campaign game, we started to ask these questions of, like, if you have multiple worlds that are strung together from game to game, you have this character that persists between each game, like between each story arc, and that character is you, the player. Right. And so we started to have these questions of like, you have the characters that are in each world that you make in Questlandia, and then you have you, the player. And so we started to talk about like, should you, the player, be a character? Like how meta do we want to get here? I wasn't completely on board with that. <laughs> I was super not on board. <laughs> <laughs> um, and eventually I came around to the idea that it was a terrible idea, but it did open up this conversation of like, are there multiple levels of characters that we should have? The characters that you play after you create a world and like in that game you were like prince, turtle, mm -hmm. snail, but then like when you're at the table, there's this meta story that's being created and this meta plot. And like in the meta plot, who is controlling the meta plot? Like who are the characters that jump from world to world and control this world from story to story aside from you, the player? 
And that's when we started to talk about Metaplot. And starting with the players themselves being in the game was actually a reasonable jumping off point because the people who would travel from world to world would have a similar motivation to the players at the table, this uh, curiosity and excitement about diving into completely different places. It made sense to start by talking about the players themselves being the characters. I'm still voting for like Jumanji. (laughs) (laughs) But where we ended up was a a kind of compromise with that, where even though I'm not going to be playing Evan at the table, I will be playing somebody who is actively exploring and partly generating the world as we play it. And even to the extent we're hoping that when I roll the dice at the table, it represents this world hopping character doing a similar thing, using a tool to generate some information about the world. Yeah, and that connects back to something that we had mentioned in episode one when we were talking about some of our design goals, the idea of the in-game tools that you have, like the in-game rule tools that you have to resolve mechanical things that we want them to feel like they actually are literally connected to this, like these meta plot level characters that like, like these characters at sort of the, the table level use some sort of oracle to make decisions. And so when you're actually grabbing the dice, you are sort of stepping back a level from Turtle Prince and into... I don't know, whoever this other character is. But yeah. it's weird. It gets weird fast. The you know, the ideal is that what this gives you is a game that's extremely immersive because even when you're flipping through the rule book or rolling the dice or consulting a table, you actually haven't left the game's fiction. You can still be in the world as a character doing these things. And as a result, you can just completely lose yourself in the act of exploring these worlds. So there's this other thing that we've talked about, which is that in Questlandia, we you know, made this game where you build a world. For some players, it took them hours. And you know, they spent hours building the world and they really enjoyed it. But then afterwards, they were expected to like continue with the game. And they either got burned out and had to split it into multiple sessions, or they felt like for the amount of world building that they'd done, that the payoff of that playing a one or two shot game just wasn't worth it. Like you were only in this world for a few more hours at most. So part of the hope for, you know, first of all, letting you play in each one of these worlds for a long time, and then for every world that you create, stringing them together with Metaplot. The idea is that you've created these worlds that have a larger significance and they're all strung together with this story that has a larger significance that people can follow over time. And then you've made these worlds that also live on after you've played in them. And maybe there's a way to share them with other players or share them online. Those are, you know, things that we're just starting to talk about. So we've talked about the fact that we want to make these meta worlds. What are some of the things that we've talked about in terms of what this will actually look like in the game? Our ideas for this keep changing. We've gone through a bunch of iterations just through discussions of, you know, what is the connection between these worlds? What are the people who are exploring them like? So jump to the end. Where we're at right now, we're imagining a ruined society, which is a common sight for anybody who's played a game of Quisley and Dia to its end. 
it's the inhabitants of one of these ruined societies exploring other worlds to look for answers about what went wrong with their own society. And this is like the first major break from the original game because like we're not talking about in a Questlandia world, you're playing somebody trying to make your way through a ruined society. We are talking about like at the meta level outside of each world where you're also playing somebody in that world trying to make sense of a ruined society. In this story that strings these stories together, you are playing a person whose society has already collapsed, somehow jumping in and out of these worlds to make sense of like what what collapse means and how collapse happens. Maybe. These are some of our early ideas. Mm-hmm. It could still change. But right now, I'm liking the idea, the vision of these survivors stumbling on a abandoned technique or technology of their people to explore these worlds and going into them as novices who are desperate and who want tangible benefit from what they find there and are struggling to find meaning in their in the collapse of their own society. And part of them being novices, aside from the fact that it's just like cool in a, on a story level, is that we can tie it directly into the way that you learn the rules. Yeah, I think it could be great to have moments where, you know, as you're putting together the rules for the first time and playing, your characters are also struggling and, you know... Uh, messing up the worlds they visit or having very brief, crazy encounters by using a technology they don't fully understand. We have a name for them. <laughs> we call them the junk poets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that name came from like trying to come up with a bunch of other names and then like they were all taken from like, you know, existing YA fantasy series. Mm -hmm. And so we're like, nobody has taken the junk poets. Have we Googled it yet? I don't know. Junk, Junk Poets? Poets is probably like a band that I don't know of. Yeah, we haven't even Googled it. I don't it. think we Googled it. Maybe we All just right. assumed. God damn it. Sorry if there's any Junk Poets listening to this. <laughs> I didn't mean to steal your intellectual property. Yeah, so right now we're calling them the Junk Poets, and that started as a joke, but I've kind of fallen in love with it. But after this episode, I'm going to learn that, you know, it's like a Disney yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's some of what we're talking about at the most basic level. Let's talk a little bit more about this broken world. This is the first time that we are going to be writing a story that other people will either care about or not care about. And it's going to be a selling point of the next game. Like in the last game, it was like, it's, it's generic fantasy, world building. Maybe you'll like it if you like Miyazaki. But here, like, we are going to have some responsibility over, like, its coolness. Yeah, in the original Questlandia, we wrote examples. We have examples of, you know, the kind of things you might find in the worlds. And there's a side-by-side, -side, there's like a full game playthrough in the book that shows a whole world being made. But it is obviously not the world that players enter. It's just there is an example. And so, in a way, we sort of dodged responsibility for people getting a cool world of their own. We said... Just do it yourself. <laughs> it's smart. Mm -hmm. So we are losing that advantage with this approach. We're creating a world and relying on our own strength of fiction to make it one that's something that players want to jump into, that they're happy to inhabit. Yeah. 
So how long has the world that we're thinking about been broken for? A bit. I mean, I... I yeah. In a world that's been broken for a bit. <laughs> After you, a bit of trouble. These are the parts where, like, when you're playtesting and somebody's like, well, how long's the world been broken for? And you're like, a bit? And they're like, well, looks like you don't even know anything about your own game, huh? We really don't. I mean, I'm imagining that these are, these are, the, this is like the ruined generation. Junk poets were born into a collapsed world. They don't have a lot of reverence for the old society that they see the rubble of all around them. Like millennials. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've, we've talked about a lot of different ideas of like who these junk poets are and how they travel and what their relationship is to the world that they're going to be inhabiting, if not literally at least like with some sort of weird psychic astral projection. Um, one of our first ideas involved them doing this like dimensional uh, timeline hopping in a spaceship. Yeah, we, we talked about having them, you know, going at light speed so that when they visit places, hundreds or thousands of years have passed, even though for it's just an instant for them. And so they revisit societies as they build up or fall down. And then another idea that we talked about was this idea of them stumbling upon like a library. They have these books that drop them into these worlds or teach them things about these worlds. But, you know, they, they are like inhabiting this space of uh, secret knowledge or some sort of academic space that they use as a way to do their world hopping. Yeah, there was a point where we were thinking of them as sort of young professionals. <laughs> just learning to learning to do this kind of hopping and taking notes together and working as a team. So really quickly, after we got really excited about the spaceship idea and we talked a lot about it and we made a lot of weird fiction around it, we abandoned that idea because, at least in my mind, a spaceship codes so strongly with sci-fi and Questlandia is a sci-fi game because it's like, it's a genre hopping game. Like, it can be sci-fi. It can be a Western. It can be noir. It can be dark fantasy. But I just didn't want, like, I didn't want the cover of the game or, like, one of the first points of entry to be, like, something that people associated with sci-fi. Mm -hmm. And I feel sort of mad about that. Because <laughs> yeah. spaceships are cool. <laughs> Agreed. I'm glad you agree. So a spaceship strongly codifies sci-fi. People who sign up for a spaceship game aren't going to like how unscientific a lot of the processes are in this game. They're open to being scientific. You could have a group where everybody demands that the universe they're creating has that kind of consistency and can be examined in that detail. But the rules don't require it. You can have magical worlds. So spaceship, out. But For now. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, maybe we can design a spaceship that looks like a wizard <laughs> <laughs> so the idea that has stuck for now but we have concerns about is the idea of the library we like the library as like a metaphor we like the framing i think we both like libraries um libraries have like a little bit of a fantasy association i think and like sort of a is stodgy the word Mm -hmm. stodgy fantasy you know like the sort of lyra's oxford association so i worry about framing it in a library and like losing people who don't 
want the stuffiness of it. But I don't know, maybe it can be a weird library. I mean, with a game that can go in as many directions as Questlandia, any framing we put in will be leaving out some important possibilities. It'll be failing to show how crazy it can get. Because there just isn't enough space on a cover to show a hundred different worlds. It's going to be a bigger book than we normally make, so maybe we can show like eight worlds. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. Probably we really do want to try to make a cover that shows this sort of central hub and the many worlds that are being visited off of it. But a library is a good metaphor for that. It does give this idea that a library is a central hub, and within that hub are a million different experiences waiting for you. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it works. So this idea that we've been talking about is that these junk poets find this library. Maybe they already know about the library. Somehow they stumble upon this library book space um, that has been previously run by who we are now calling the World Weavers, subject to change. The World Weavers are like these magical baby boomers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, maybe they're not even magic. Maybe just, they just thought they were magic. But whatever type of like, you know, in air quotes, magic they did is now sort of obsolete. Their library has fallen and the junk poets stumble upon these like kind of archaic texts and have to find a way to make use of them to learn something about their current predicament. Does that sound right? Mm-hmm. So you're in a library of failures, Maybe. It's unclear to us, and maybe to the players eventually, whether the world weavers were hoping to save the society, or whether they were okay letting it fall to pieces. It's weird having these conversations because, like, I don't know if we're going to like this idea in a few weeks, and Mm -hmm. here it is, like, boop. This is where we're at. (laughs) It's changed a lot so far already, just through, you know, a number of weeks of discussion. So this definitely isn't the end point, for sure. But the the junk poets and the world weavers have stuck around, at least for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. So is there more that we want to say about the junk poets? So our current vision of these survivors is that they have no reverence for the society that fell. They're not impressed by this library or what the world weavers were like or any of that. They have a lot of reason to be angry and just sort of purely survival-focused, practical people. But we want to balance that with them having a loving and like caring relationship with each other. Something that I've been thinking about is that their lack of reverence for their fallen past isn't because they have a lack of empathy, but kind of the opposite. The generation that has been created as a result of what came before them is actually this generation of, like, survivalist empaths, which I feel like isn't something that you often see in, like, survival fiction. Right. The idea of... The war made us hard. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, you know, that this, this, like, new empathic generation that's just trying to get by, but managing to do so lovingly. I don't know how to communicate that. It's sort of a, like, I don't know, I think about, like, this solar punk idea. But but we don't want this to be solar punk because solar punk is, like, a vision of a, like, utopian post-collapse society. And this is not utopian. But I, but I think our, like, 
I don't know, the moral universe that we want to bring to it kind of is. These are people who are trying to find answers and useful tools for their lives, but it's not because they want to rebuild society. It's because they care about each other. And so they want to find this information to help each other and go on together. One thing that we're already kind of struggling with, and I think is going to be a battle as we work on figuring out more about who the junk poets are, is battling against this hero narrative or like chosen ones. Oh, these people just stumbled upon this library accidentally, but is it an accident? Is anything an accident? Like they're special for some reason. And I really, I grapple with this because like, (laughs) I'm also like, I'm a millennial, so I think everybody's special. So I both want to like honor that and also kind of buck against it. Like, I don't want this to be a story about people who are somehow exceptional. But to even just say these are people who were in the right place at the right time is to say that they were somehow exceptional, right? Well, chosen by the gods, right? Well, yeah. Fateful. And like, fuck that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I don't know. It's something we're going to look at while we're designing the mechanics for how you engage with these worlds. Because if you swoop into these worlds, solve their problems, get the rightful heir into the throne, you're a hero. That's not the kind of stories we're looking to tell. Or like a colonialist hero. You swoop in and set the natives in order. (laughs) Yeah, that's bad. We don't know. Just talking about heroes at all, if you... If you talk about a story where there are these heroes, you are also drawing a line in the sand of the people who aren't. And those are the people who get saved or destroyed or pushed aside. So there's these super people, heroes and villains, who get to have their way with the rest of everyone. That doesn't match the kind of empathetic society we're thinking of. This is maybe a little bit babyish, but like, you know, especially when I got up into my high school years, I did not think of myself as special. And, you know, YA, it's like YA fiction has this thing of like, "Mm, Jessica did not think of herself as special, but actually she was the most special. But I want to legitimately try to make a game for non-special people. While also acknowledging what makes them special. This is the dumbest thing. I'm going to stop saying this. (laughs) Yep. All right, let's talk about something else. What's our next question, Evan? How can a meta plot go wrong? All sorts of ways. Mm Mm-hmm. One of the big things is with Questlandia, you made a world, you had your adventure in it, and you closed that chapter. And if you play again, you're starting fresh. Yeah, so like if there were plot holes, you just didn't even have enough time to pick them apart. <laughs> mm-hmm. But now we're, we have this world that you return to every time you finish one of those chapters. And you're stuck with it to some extent. Like this is the place you keep returning to. If you're not enjoying it, you're going to have a bad time. And what if we don't enjoy it? We're going to be kind of bound to whatever story we end up creating. And like at this point, we're not totally bound to it. Like if we wanted, if we want to junk the junk poets, then whatever. But like eventually we are going to have to honor what we've created. And if we decide we don't like it, then you get into these things of just like, you make a second edition. 
and then people get mad about what is not included from the first edition or you start retconning sort of adapting the timeline to make things work that weren't there before basically once once this is out there's a kind of shared ownership of this world cuz even if we wrote the initial words now all these people have played in it and they've become familiar with it and to some extent they might care about it this is where you get into stuff like you know how much right does a fan have to talk about what direction a franchise goes but i do believe it becomes this shared world a shared resource and us deciding to blow it up is a little shitty <laughs> <laughs> And this is assuming that anybody even cares about what we're making anyway. But like we have to assume that to be able to move forward and make something. I know that one of my big anxieties in talking about creating a game with this like long term, large scale overarching story was that we've suddenly created something that can be like the minutiae can be picked apart. And that's something that has sometimes kept me away from fandoms. I find it like a frustrating and sometimes toxic part of fandoms um, is this like picking apart and this picking apart and like looking at the timeline and identifying like every little place where it falls apart. And it's kind of fun. Like I can see where it would feel fun, but I'm like, I'm a little scared of it. We definitely don't want to make it so exacting that, you know, a new player looks at it and it's like, oh, I better research up on the second and third wars of <laughs> Alduaza before don't we can worry, play. There's a wiki for that. <laughs> we don't want it to be a wiki browsing kind of world. Well, maybe a required wiki yes. browsing, <laughs> a mandatory wiki. Yes. So just like you're bound to this world, you're also bound to the characters that you make, the junk poets who are hopping from world to world and. You should feel as happy as possible when you take a step back to their role. They leave a world and discuss what they found and bring the lessons to the next adventure. Yeah, so we've, we're going to be asking questions soon about, like, are the junk poets characters that you create at the table? Or have we created those characters? It, Evan and Hannah, and we have made Svetlana and Jimbo. That's, it's really a spectrum, right? Like there's no extreme on either end. Like no matter how much we write down, as soon as somebody starts playing it, they're creating some new facets of the character. So for us, we could go from just saying, this is what junk poets are like. Go ahead and make your own to saying this is Svetlana and this is her birthday and this is her favorite color. Just go down as much as possible. Almost certainly we're going to be somewhere in between. Blood right? type. Blood type, yes. <laughs> Mother's maiden name. These are their four blood types. Oh, yeah. Three well, heads. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so that's exciting. It is exciting. We want to make sure that players end up with characters that they like. So we want to do just enough to, to get them fully into the world while giving them plenty of space to bring what they care about and what they want to see into the characters. So right now, in the current iteration of this baby game we have a world that you create that you enter where you create a character of the turtle prince and then when you take a step back and you're rolling the dice you are rolling as a junk poet 
in the Hall of the World Weavers, whose name is Svetlana, who has a story and a life and motives of her own. And when you take another step back, you're Evan, who's rolling as Svetlana, who's impacting the choices of the Turtle Prince. So <laughs> how confusing is this going to be? Hopefully not at all. <laughs> it's going to be the simplest thing you've ever done in roleplay. Like, I don't know if I want this to be like the being John Malkovich of role-playing games. <laughs> but part of it's that role-playing games have always been the being John Malkovich of role-playing games. They have. It's always been uh, a juggling act. The fact that you can even do it once, that you can hop into a character and play Brutus the Paladin and then hop back up and be Evan, who's helping to, you know, talk about the game, talking on a player level, and then hopping into even more roles. Like, I'm also hosting this, and I'm going to get snacks for people. Maybe I'm also, like, guard number four. Oh, right. You definitely have, you know, it's natural for the GM to be hopping between a dozen different characters in one session, right? So we're trying to, even if we don't directly break the fourth wall in the game and get really meta in our meta plot. We're trying to find a way to like somehow acknowledge or mechanize this idea that you, the player, is always a character. Struggling to keep things from getting too confusing and mind-bending is just going to be one of the ongoing challenges of this game. It's something we're just going to have to keep revisiting over and over and over as we hash out these mechanics. Like, does it have a good flow? Is it easy to hop between perspectives? So there's this question of, like, when does meta become too meta? Like when I'm playing Evan at the table. <laughs> yeah. So I know, okay, not a good idea. I've been <laughs> that. That's fine. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, one thing that we've talked about in terms of when does meta become too meta is, like, author self-insert. <laughs> so, you know, like... In the Library of Worlds, you come across two people furiously scribbling text onto a blank book. Hello, they say, looking up. We're Hannah and Evan, the authors of this game. <laughs> we <laughs> will be, be your, your guides. guides. <laughs> we will guide you through. <laughs> we don't want that. Probably. Or do we? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, yeah, but it's funny. It's hard to just make a rule about when you go too far because, I don't know, if you read Kurt Vonnegut, he'll drop himself into his own story and it'll be so great. <laughs> I love how we've like compared it to like the war and peace of role-playing games. We can just be the Kurt Vonnegut of role-playing games. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta aim high. So that's something that we're going to be working on is like not being grossly meta in our meta right god even saying that i hate myself a little i mean this podcast is pretty <laughs> it's fucking so meta. meta oh my god okay so what's fun about meta plot let's close this out all right so unlike with questlandia where you know the games could be anything with this one we do have a central hub we have a consistent world and speaking as somebody who's likely to do a bunch of this art It'll be really cool to get to dive into this single world and create like a consistent art style for it and the look for it and how clothes look and how buildings look and like go in deep. I'm excited because I think this was going to be the first time that 
you know, people will share their Questlandia worlds online, but this is going to be the first time that we'll have this shared language of, like, these characters that that ideally people might have some love for. And, yeah. like, this story that people might feel personally invested in. And, like, we can talk about that with people instead of just talking about it in this vague way of, like, oh, you made a cool thing with floating islands and you were all slug people. That sounds really cool. Like, there will be that, too. But they can be talking about how their characters that we know interfaced with these worlds that they made. Right. That's cool. That's super cool. I think that I'm still excited about if we can pull it off, having this kind of immersive interplay of what your characters are doing matching what you're doing at the table. So that when I flip through the rule book, it's in character. Got to look through this World Weaver manual, and it's really badly indexed. And so it's going to take me forever to find the right page. <laughs> like, I, I like the idea of having that problem, and it's in character. <laughs> So we can write like a really shitty rule book, but just like totally yeah, get away with it exactly. because it's in character. Those shitty world weavers, man. <laughs> I'm Hannah. I wrote you this shitty rule book. <laughs> Let me be your guide. <laughs> there she is. Get her. <laughs> so that's where we stand on the meta plot. It's still in flux. And even as we talk about other topics in the weeks to come, we're probably going to keep revisiting this and seeing how it changes it and interfaces with it and puzzling it out. In our next episode, we're going to be talking about world building in particular. It's how we, you know, pass the meta level when they actually get around to creating a world to explore. <laughs> oh, we're explore. not even in the game yet. <laughs> <laughs> how do these worlds get made? How do you build a society? How did Questlandia do it? And how can we improve and expand on that for the sequel if you have thoughts or questions about world building or you want to talk to us about this episode you can email us at designdocpod at gmail.com or even better you can follow us on twitter at designdocpod and tweet to us because we really like hearing what you thought about the episode it was awesome after the first episode to hear what everybody thought and it makes us feel really good uh, if you want to follow us personally on Twitter, I am Han Bandit. And I am on there as A Drawn Novel. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you soon. The Design Doc intro and outro theme was created by our friend and musician, Pat King. Thanks, Pat. The Design Doc podcast is hosted by the One Shot Podcast Network. If you enjoyed Design Doc, visit oneshotpodcast.com, where you'll find other great shows, like Modifier, an interview podcast with Megan Dornbrock that's changing the game when it comes to changing games. Designers of every level are invited to discuss what prompted them to hack a game, the kind of play experience they seek to create, and the types of stories they're hoping to tell. If you're enjoying the podcast here, it would mean the world to us if you went over to iTunes and left us a review. It'll help more people find the show, and it'll fill us with determination. Determination. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon, heroes.